Chapter Thirteen of the King's Daughter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The King's Daughter by Pansy. Chapter Thirteen: A Strange Scene in a Bar Room. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Dell and Mister Tresevant walked homeward a fair share of the way in almost absolute silence. Dell ventured a remark or two about the beauty of the evening, but she received absent-minded replies until she began to wonder why he did not go his own homeward way and commune with his own thoughts without disturbance, if such were his desire. At last she broke the silence and spoke in a mischievous tone. Mr. Tresevant, why don't you criticize our performance this evening? How do you know I'm in a critical mood? he asked quietly. Oh, I know you are longing to disapprove of a dozen things that were said and done. I can see it in your face. The moonlight is very bright, you know. Besides, I looked at you twice during the evening. He laughed a little at that, then said gravely, since you read my face so well, I may as well confess to you that I did entirely disapprove of the tenor of the arguments to-night. I do not know who I am censuring, probably Mr. Nelson. He is not a Christian man, and, therefore, we must not expect much of him. But I can but wish that he were more careful of his choice of language. If you mean the exercise, Dell answered promptly, it was not his language at all. The exercise was selected. Well, in his selections, then— I think it was a most unfortunate thing. Mr. Tresevant was growing excited. He spoke very earnestly, a little hotly, Dell thought. She felt perfectly composed and good-humored. She had not expected Mr. Tresevant to be pleased, knowing perfectly well that the arguments trenched too closely on his views to be agreeable. Will you enlighten us as to the unfortunateness of our evening's work, she said, still speaking gaily, because we are pluming ourselves on the fact that it passed off delightfully, and perhaps it is as well to have our pride somewhat subdued. I know you are not in sympathy with my views, Miss Bronson. I know you feel deeply on this subject. I honor you for it. If you carry the feeling to almost an extreme, it is not in the least to be wondered at. But aside from your personal feeling, let me ask you, do you think it right to hold the pastor of a church up to ridicule before his own young people, be the subject what it may? May he not honestly differ in opinion from one member of his congregation, without thus being made the subject of public sarcasm? Now, indeed, Dell was dismayed. She spoke hurriedly and eagerly. Mr. Tresevant, I do earnestly assure you that nothing of the sort was intended or implied. I am posted in this matter, and the principal actors in it would be utterly shocked and grieved did they suppose that you for a moment imagined such a thing. Mr. Tresevant smiled loftily. I do not doubt your sincerity, he said kindly. It is evident that you do not share the feeling which I am certain exists. But allow me to remind you that I am older than you, and have probably seen more of the wrong side of the world. You were kind enough to believe that the exercise of the evening was selected. I believe nothing of the sort. I consider Mr. Nelson entirely capable of having written it, and I have not the least doubt but that he did so, and it was most closely and unkindly aimed at me throughout." I confess I once thought him more of a gentleman than to be guilty of so small a thing, but I must change my mind. Dell's voice lost its touch of dismayed distress. It was cold and had a touch of hauteur, as she said. You have an undoubted right to believe what you please, a right which you seem bent on gratifying to the utmost to-night. Therefore I cannot know that you will please to believe me when I tell you that Mr. Nelson never heard one word of the exercise until this evening, and that it was prepared by my uncle Edward and myself, before I had so much as heard of your existence, so that I am at a loss to understand how it could be considered a personal attack, 
unless it touched you so nearly that you must accept it as belonging to you. It was Mr. Tresevant's turn to be dismayed. Miss Bronson, I beg your pardon, he said, in a voice full of distress. I did not imagine, I assure you I had no idea, I do hope you will overlook my language. There is no occasion to apologize, Dell said gaily, her good humor having returned. Indeed, you have quite honored me in appropriating my wisdom as Mr. Nelson's, and if I have proved to you that personality was the farthest from my thoughts, I think I have fairly earned the right to hear your criticisms. I am sorry that while I admire the genius displayed, I must be frank and not approve some of the arguments, he answered gravely. I am not sorry at all. I knew you would not approve. What I want to know now is the reason why. Miss Bronson, haven't we been all over this ground before? Not a bit, Dell said promptly. The arguments are not old ones. We consider that we advanced some, at least, that are original. Now for your objections. I do not approve of exacting indiscriminate promises, especially from the young, for any purpose whatever. Nor do I, but how does your remark apply to us? The promise asked for to-night applied to something very definite, very simple, and something that had been very carefully explained. Have you an idea that the promise extorted from that child to-night, in regard to her some time in the future marrying somebody, will be in the least likely to be kept, provided it conflicts with her future wishes? I don't know, Dell answered gravely, but Mr. Tresevant, the same child united with your church two weeks ago, have you an idea that she will keep the solemn promise that you, I will not say extorted from her, although I think there certainly was as much appearance of extortion as there was in our meeting this evening? If she does keep it, he answered her, in some heat, and ignoring the question she asked, if she does keep it, I think you have laid her under a cruel obligation, one that may be the cause of great and unnecessary suffering. The man who seeks her for a wife might be in every way worthy of her, and yet have conscientious scruples against signing a pledge. How can you think it right to fetter people thus? Then Dell did a most disrespectful thing. She laughed, but she immediately apologized for it. I beg pardon, Mr. Tresevant. You undoubtedly have a right to your own views, and I suppose I have a right to consider them absurd if I choose. But if you wish me to define my opinion, it is simply that a good man, who has considered the magnitude of the evils of intemperance, and who has resolved in his heart and asked God to help him, to do everything in his power by precept and example, and in every other way that he thinks right to put down the evil, is in my estimation solemnly pledged. If he is conscientiously opposed to putting his name on a piece of paper, he is a mystery to be sure, and to me he would be an absurdity. I should consider him standing in his own light and trampling on one means of usefulness, but that would not alter the nature of his solemn pledge between God and his own soul but a man who was conscientiously opposed to pledges because he believed in temperance as opposed to total abstinence, because, in short, he liked wine or beer or cider and meant to use it, I certainly would not marry. I would do anything in my power to keep a friend of mine from marrying him. Those are my solemn convictions of duty, Mr. Tresevant. He answered her lightly without a trace of his former interest. Miss Bronson, I propose that you and I raise a flag of truce. We shall probably never agree any better than we do now in our views on this subject, and we certainly can find pleasanter topics to discuss. I beg your pardon for having drawn you into this debate, and I will endeavor not to transgress again. Then followed a few bright words from each, in regard to other matters, and he left her at her father's door. She went to her little back parlor and dropped herself wearily into a seat. 
that reaction which those who have felt understand so well and dread so much, began to creep over her. She had worked hard and eagerly for this evening, she had assumed much care and responsibility, and what had been accomplished. Nothing, it seemed to her. She even doubted whether the exercise was not a failure. If only Uncle Edward had been there to help and comment. If he were only here now, this poor lonely girl said aloud, or if I were there, sitting on the low seat by Aunt Laura, with her hand just touching my hair, and Uncle Edward going over the evening, and pointing out what we could do to improve the next effort. Oh, uncle and auntie, I want you, I need you. Oh, pshaw! This last is a sort of rallying cry to her drooping heart. You must not desert me, she said to her weary spirits. This is not Boston, and I am not Uncle Edward. If I were, it would be a nicer world, but since I am only myself, we must do what we can and be cheerful over it. She gathered up her fallen hat and gloves and passed out into the hall. There was much loud talking in the bar-room, among which she could distinguish her father's voice and her own name. "'My Dell will beat all the singing you ever heard tell of,' he was saying earnestly. "'I declare now if you shan't have a specimen.' And just as Dell was passing the door, he swung it open and spoke to her. "'I declare, here you are. I'm in the very nick of time. I was coming to hunt you. Just you come in now and give us a song. Steve here has been bragging like all possessed about his girl's singing.' and I tell him I know she can't begin to compare with mine, and I want you to come and prove it. Saying which, he took hold of her arm and tried to draw her in. There was necessity for very rapid thinking on Dell's part. Her father had been drinking, not so much as he often did, but enough to render him incapable of seeing the impropriety of his direction. There were four others in the bar-room, all of them in different stages of intoxication. One of them, a young man, seemed to have some faint gleams of sense left in his confused brain, for he muttered, "'Oh, now, Bronson, that's, that's rather mean, taking advantage of a girl. Let her go now, that's a good fellow.' "'What should she do?' Here was her father, talking eagerly and gently pushing her in, yet there was a wild gleam in his eye suggestive of anything but gentleness, and there were no means of determining what he might not do if his anger were aroused by a refusal." Yet could she come into that awful room and sing for those four drunkards? Was there any hope that song of hers might reach their hearts, through brains so befogged with liquor? Would she not in a sense be casting pearls before swine if she attempted to reach them in any way while in that condition? What would Uncle Edward tell her to do if he were there? Should she try to get away and run the risk of maddening her father, and losing for the future the influence that she now possessed over him? Oh, what would the master tell her to do? In season and out of season. Did it mean even at such times as these? And Del Bronson lifted up her heart in brief, earnest cry for help, then allowed herself to be drawn into the room, pushed the door behind her, and taking her station near it, behind a large chair, looking meantime in her white robes and white face, like a pale spirit descended among them from another world, she suddenly let her pure, rich voice float through the room, her father dropped silently into a chair near her, and listened, as every word came to their ears, as distinctly as though she had been reading it. Say, sinner, hath a voice within, oft whispered to thy secret soul, urged thee to leave the ways of sin, and yield thy heart to God's control? Sinner, it was a heavenly voice, it was the Spirit's gracious call, it bade thee make the better choice, and haste to seek in Christ thine all. Spurn not the call to life and light, Regard in time the warning kind. That call mayst not always slight, 
and yet the gate of mercy find. Sinner, perhaps this very day, thy last accepted time may be. Oh, shouldst thou grieve him now away, then hope may never beam on thee. Even Dell herself was conscious of the fact that she had never sung before as she sang those words that night. They seemed to be wrung from her very soul, and her listeners sat as if they felt something of their power. Through to the end, with clear, full tones, then as silently and swiftly as if she had indeed been a spirit, she turned and vanished from the room. She ran upstairs through the hall to her own room, and locked and bolted the door. Then she flung herself on her knees and buried her head in the pillow, giving way to a perfect passion of tears. The utter desolation and bitterness of her lot rolled heavily upon her. What a humiliation had come over her! What would her Boston friends have thought to have found her singing songs in a barroom to a company of drunkards, and one of them her father? Oh, the bitterness of that thought! She felt utterly crushed and hopeless. Her life seemed to her not worth a struggle. What had she accomplished? What could she accomplish? Who was there to help her? Even the minister of the gospel turned with cold eyes away from the work, had no words for it but those of discouragement. It was an hour of great and bitter sorrow. The bowed form shook and trembled with the strength of her pain. The poor motherless, worse than fatherless girl, felt utterly desolate and alone. Gradually the stormy grief subsided, and her tears came quietly, and after a little there came to the lonely girl a sweet remembrance of the fact that she was not alone, that there really was no such thing as lonely hours for her. Had not her father said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee? I am a weak, foolish child, she said aloud. I constantly forget my father's house and the room preparing for me there. I even forget my father's presence and promise, and complain that I am alone and desolate. O oh, father, forgive my murmuring, and teach me how to endure patiently, remembering that thy ways are not as our ways. End of chapter 13 Recording by Tricia G.